This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. Our aim is to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This week in the news, we talk about Boeing's decision not to pursue a new middle-of-the-market airplane for now, thoughts on propellers as the next viable step towards aviation sustainability, first-class high-wall super suites, a passenger is detained over a photograph, blocking seats to maintain weight and balance, and a KC-46 Class A mishap. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 723 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is Max Trescott. He's host of Aviation News Talk Podcast. He's a national CFI of the year. And if you're interested in learning to fly or purchase a Cirrus aircraft, well, Max Trescott is a guy you should talk to. Hey, Max. Well, hello, Max. We got two Maxes on here at the same time. That's a first in, uh, what, about uh, eight weeks or thereabouts? How long have you been on the road? Quite a while. I've been on the road for, let's see, uh, eight weeks now. Wow. And I'm almost home, but I am back to the land of the internet. So we will uh, <laughs> uh, be re- returning to our regular format and uh, hope to pick that up pretty quickly. And to help us with that, we have... David Vanderhoof with us. He's our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Well, yeah, this is kind of weird. I mean, it, it's just the three of us, so it's 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 Max, Max, and David, which sounds like a bad television show, or, or, a, <laughs> or a really great law firm. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. So we're looking forward to having a um, spirited conversation. Where this is this is actually take two, considering we just talked about all of the articles before we got on. So we did, we did, and we're missing Rob Mark uh, this episode. He's off doing. I don't know, whatever it is that Rob Mark does when he's not here. And uh, hopefully we'll see him again next week. We'll also be scheduling some guests and getting back into that routine. Getting uh, excited to to be back in the land of the internet, as I said uh, earlier. But we've got some news stories to talk about this week. Why don't we get started? Are you two guys ready? Ready from the West. Ready from the first state. Our first story comes from airinsight.com. This is written by Addison Schoenland, who we've had on the show not not in a long time. Um, Addison does some good uh, good work, good reporting, good journalism. And this is titled, uh, Boeing, quote, We won't contemplate a new airplane. And that's a quote. It's a quote from David Calhoun, Boeing's president and CEO. And he made a number of statements at an investors conference Uh, Calhoun said, we won't contemplate a new airplane. We won't even put it on the drawing board until we know we're capable of doing that. So this is strategy for us, capabilities. And then there'll be a moment in time when we'll pull a rabbit out of the hat and introduce a new airplane sometime in the middle of the next decade. Now, he's, of course, talking about what we have been popularly calling the middle-of-the-market airplane, the MOM, a single-aisle aircraft for the the middle of the market, something sort of along the lines of what the uh, 757 did 
But he went on and added that what matters is the capability to bring you that airplane. Is it differentiable enough to put you in the leadership position? I don't want to fill a gap in a product line. I want to build a product that's going to differentiate in a way that absolutely substitutes the airplanes that came before it. So I don't think this is really surprising. I mean, does, you know, developing this aircraft in this class, uh, something to compete with the A321neo, has been talked about for quite a long time, years and years. And I think the time has really kind of passed where, uh, I mean, we have several things at play. For one thing, Boeing has been through some very expensive, uh, what's what's the word I should call the 737 MAX? Um, experiences um, also with a tanker and with some, you know, other kinds of issues and investing billions to design, develop a new aircraft be kind of, kind of tough right now, but there's also the timing of the market and that may be um, a factor as well. I think. I think Boeing's got a long way to go to clean up their house before they're ready to make a new airplane. I think that's the message behind the message in this statement is um, we're right now involved in so many other things fixing the existing airplanes. Um, I don't know a program at Boeing that doesn't have issues with maybe the 777, but between the 787, the 737, um, the KC-46, none of it's great. And introducing another airplane into that mix probably is not a good idea. And it is interesting though, um the 757 which is this air which is what the aircraft we're talking about is in a class really by itself and there is no I mean Airbus really doesn't have anything to compete with it. So it's sort of like I mean the 321 Neo is is the same but it's still not what the seven five was, which was designed for hot and high climates, but I think Boeing just has got way too much on its plate right now to even think about a new aircraft and the question is then who would buy it if they came out with it because with the global economy the way it is it's there's really not a market for airplanes. Airbus has really had a five year roughly head start with the a three twenty one uh, Boeing is just so far behind with that. And um, the 321neo, 321, has been uh, very successful for for Airbus. And they have volume there, whereas if Boeing were to uh, bring out a new aircraft in that same class in the next so many years, let's say, on a cost basis, they're not going to be able to compete. And that would probably translate into a price basis. Um, which uh, is, is going to be problematic for the airlines. But uh, Richard Abalafia has uh, uh, a view on this that is, uh, I think, quite instructive. He said the possibility of disruptive new technologies has provided a useful excuse for Boeing to do nothing. Well, only Richard can get away with something, uh, something like that. He says there may be new propulsion technologies coming in 15 years or 20 Nobody can say. In the meantime, the middle market is the hottest segment in the industry uh, that, that the industry has seen in decades, and it now belongs to Airbus. All that remains is for Airbus to develop the A22500, gravely damaging MAX 8 sales. 
That will knock Boeing down to a 25% market share. And being reduced to a 25% market share is the best excuse ever for continuing to do nothing. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, pretty strong criticism there. Yeah. Richard, um, Richard has the, the, the kind of insight um, that allows him to, you know, to make uh, statements like that that really are pretty accurate. But speaking of Richard Abalafia, we had a, an email from our listener Dag, uh, one of our one of our good listeners, Dag, and this is a piece that Richard wrote for Aviation Week. It's, it's an opinion piece. Could propellers help solve the sustainability conundrum? But Dag wrote to us and said, uh, "Hi, geeks. First, I want to thank you for keeping up the contact, even while Max is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I really was in the middle of nowhere. I found this interesting article on hype aviation. We talked about hype aviation in a, in a previous episode that brings up important points about our approach to sustainability. Thought I would share it with you, and that's from Dag again. But uh, as we all know, the Global aviation industry, the civil aviation industry, has committed to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. And there are new technologies out there that require a lot of investment, like billions of dollars of investment. The uh, previous item, the Boeing middle of, so-called middle-of-the-market aircraft, is an example of that. But... We have these technologies, these new technologies. Hydrogen power is being looked at, of course, electric and hybrid propulsion, uh, also SAF, sustainable aviation fuel. But Richard points out that in in some cases, the, the feasibility of the technology and even the cost effectiveness of these technologies really causes some concern. There are, there are questions. Um, it's you can pick your new technology and it's kind of easy to pick to throw rocks at you know any one of them for for different reasons but richard is saying well we kind of have a technology that's maybe underutilized it's one that we used to uh, rely on but we've gotten away from and that's propellers it's of various forms. As he points out, most regional airplanes used to be turboprops. Now most of them are jets. Not all of them, but most of them. Jets use more fuel. Uh, propellers can offer double-digit fuel savings over what the jets provide. And uh, propellers are a proven technology. Why not look at that for the, the maybe not that, well, maybe the near term or uh, something sooner than the 10 or 20 or 30 years it may take to fully develop these other new technologies. So I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. You know, maybe, maybe we've gotten kind of um, dazzled by hydrogen fuel and fuel cells and all these other things. But when it comes to, yeah, well, practically, what are we able to do, meaning time-wise and can we afford it? You know, maybe, maybe they're a stretch. I don't know. What do you think? Well, he also mentions a book by David Edgerton, The Shock of the Old Technology and Global History Since 1900. And in it, he points out that often technologies do not live up to their potential until decades after they are invented. Flamboyant new technologies are often overrated as a consequent. 
while mature technologies are underrated. And I think that's kind of interesting. If you look right now, you know, the race for electric airplanes, yeah, there are going to be some applications for, uh, for electric, but boy, it sure has been much longer in coming. I just commented to someone today, I first saw an electric airplane fly 11 years ago. Mm. <laughs> it was at AirVenture, uh, and I was with a, I was assigned to do some uh, work with a, a video crew. We were running around shooting video on all kinds of interesting things. And there was a gentleman from upstate New York who had taken his home-built aircraft, a laser, and he had uh, filled it up with uh, LiPo batteries, uh, <laughs> all purchased from China. And that thing was phenomenal to watch. Uh, of course, it was really kind of fun to see that when he was taxing, if he came to a stop, the propeller stopped. <laughs> you know, something we don't see with the, with engines because you know when you put the engine at idle, it still has to be you know zooming along at eight nine hundred thousand RPM, you know something like that. Uh, so anyway, I I just kind of think that the electric aircraft industry I think is probably going to be slower to get there than a lot of people think, and that. Um, you know, there, there's certainly going to be some good applications, but I think some of the ones that people come up with probably won't be good applications. So that will be an example where mature technologies we have today are being underrated and that the, you know, the, the new electric uh, technologies are not going to be as pervasive as uh, perhaps people think they're going to be. It does bring up a point. Why did we move away from turboprops? The only thing I can think of is noise for the passengers. But, you know, the whole uh, de Havilland Dash 7s, you know, and, and that whole class of of turboprops were not that much slower than the jets, the regional jets we use today. And, and they're far more fuel efficient. So it is kind of interesting that we moved so far away that we, we have to, like, go back and rethink the strategies. And, and at this point, nobody's building these turboprops and we need to have somebody to go back and reinvent something that didn't really need to A, disappear and B, um, should be still in production. This article made me think, you know, it's like, okay, you're right. I mean, growing up, turboprops were everywhere, at least for, and not even reciprocal with the turboprops, you know, and that class of aircraft has just disappeared. You know, it's gone the way of Rob Mark, you know, <laughs> gone, not forgotten, but, but, but gone. No, I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a good point. I think, I think there are a couple of reasons uh, for that change that we saw. I mean, one might be marketing, right? Jets were, modern and, you know, appealing to the travelers. And I mean, there's a whole term jet setter, right? There's no such thing as a turboprop setter, right? There's, there's a jet be like setter. A, be, be kind of like an Irish setter, I guess. Maybe. Different color. But, uh, and also, of course, you know, fuel was a lot cheaper in those days. But there are other things that have been decades under development or were under development decades ago, things like prop fans and ducted propellers and things. And we've seen a lot of uh, uh, more recent um, development of those kinds of technologies. So, I mean, it's they're, they're not exactly propellers, but they kind of are. It's uh, not as exotic as hydrogen fuel. 
um, but it's something maybe a bit in the middle that uh, you know makes uh, uh, or represents an improvement, a potential improvement in terms of sustainability and all that. Um, and so it you know it may be time for those to emerge as well. And this does tie back to that previous article about uh, you know Boeing's um, decision on that uh, middle of the market airplane because you have to you have to pick your horse when you're talking about designing a new airplane. And you know what horse do you pick right now? It's difficult. You know it may be a wiser business decision to not pick any horses right now and just you know go to a different track. I don't know. There's some kind of analogy there, but uh, I, I, I'll think of it later. And I like that David brought up uh, the whole question about turboprops going away. I, I think you both have hit on key aspects, and I think probably the, the the umbrella term is customer experience. I think the perception was that people like the quieter jets. And, you know, the downside was that they're bigger and they have more people, which means that you had less frequent service for a market that has some given number of passengers, or you had a lot of loss of service over time where you know, markets just couldn't sustain larger and larger regional jets because whereas you know we used to have a lot of 50 seat regional jets they kind of moved to the 70 and then the 90 uh, and that just kind of leaves a lot of smaller cities uh, you know without a uh, service and i think part of the rationale was that people were going to value the regional jets so much that they would be willing to drive further to get to some other major airport uh, rather than, you know, fly a turboprop out of their city, which now has, you know, no service at all. I'm not sure that that's really, truly how people, you know, felt. Uh, but I think that was probably the justification that the uh, the airlines used. I mean, frankly, I'm not really interested in driving a couple of hours to get to an airport. I like being able to drive to the local airport, even if, you know, the, the service is going to be, you know, a smaller airplane. It's just nice not to have to drive hours to, to start your journey. So, so I would love to actually see us get back to uh, more smaller, you know, fewer seat aircraft that could bring service back to the many communities that have, have lost service. And maybe that will actually be some of the, the new fuel technologies, the hydrogen or the, the electrics or things like that. There was an announcement a week or two ago that Amp Air has just uh, received an order for 25 of their eco caravans with options for a, another 25 and this is um, basically a 10-passenger uh, aircraft, which, uh, because of the way they've set it up, still has the same useful load that it would have uh, as, a, uh, as a turboprop. And actually, as I recall, it's a hybrid electric. I think it also has a, an engine in addition to the, um, to the, to the batteries. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's one, since the electrics probably are going to be only viable in smaller aircraft anyway, this I think is really a huge opportunity to bring service back to all these small cities that have lost service. Hmm. The other thing is, I also think talking about customer experiences, as far as the general public goes, little airplanes are not as safe as bigger airplanes. And I, I think while a Dash 7 is just as safe as a, a re, an RJ, because it had propellers, I think there was the there was an automatic presumption that that was a less safe airplane, you know? And I think the airlines sort of used that as a leverage to be able to move to all-jet service 
they could have been educating that, you know, these are just as safe as it was all these years. So I, I don't know. You know, it's kind of interesting. The uh, the last uh, kind of big accident we had uh, here in the U.S. was a Colon uh, air flight back in 2009. That was a turboprop. That was a Bombardier Q400. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting when you think about it. The uh, the track record of the turboprops, yeah, probably wasn't quite as good as that as the, uh, the jets. Yeah, but it wasn't the turboprop that was the problem with the Colon accident. It wasn't the aircraft. Right, but then I also immediately think of what was the, the crash out in the Indiana area, which was an ATR, I think, which had icing on the wings a number of years ago. I mean, I bet if we were to actually go back and take track, I bet the turboprops do have a slightly worse record than the, the jets. And part of that might be they're flying at lower altitudes or more likely to be in the thick of the weather, more likely to pick up icing. So, yeah, I would agree that the safety record is close, but I bet there's a slight edge for the jets. Hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, press on and look at a different, perhaps, segment of the market. And that's those who are most likely to purchase first-class tickets. Oh, speaking of Brian. Speaking of Brian, yes, yes. I know. We've been uh, getting texts from, from Brian today on his uh, his flying adventures. But he'll he'll come on another time and tell us about those, uh, as well as on his, his own show. But uh, Micah sent this in. This is from CNN. The latest in luxurious first-class airplane suites building up. So first-class suites, this is on the airplane, of course, uh, with doors, with actual doors. Uh, I guess first showed up in the Airbus A380, and it then spread to other wide bodies. And these kinds of uh, little suites offered, obviously, some degree of luxury, and also some degree of privacy, but not total privacy because of something called the cabin view requirements. And uh, the, the doors in these little suites tended to be, oh, about chest high. Uh, so the crew could see inside. Uh, obviously, for safety reasons, you can't have passengers walled off and not visible to the crew. And again, that's called the cabin view requirements. So the article describes some of the latest Boeing 777 first-class suites, uh, super suites with high walls. In fact, they're entirely enclosed. So you've got a lot of privacy in there and maybe even more luxury or perceived luxury. Um, Some of these are pretty incredible where customers can actually customize things like the color of the accent lighting and, and things like this. So so how do you get around this cabin view requirement? Well, Emirates is using closed-circuit TV cameras to keep an eye on you. Now, they they say that they're not recorded, that uh, only the cabin crew has access to the, you know, to the view from the closed-circuit TV cameras, and there's no recording. They're 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 only live views. So they kind of try to address those those concerns. But I don't know. To me, it just seems, I don't know how I would feel being in an, well, I don't know how I would feel being in an enclosed cabin in an airliner to begin with. But if I was in one of those and there was a camera watching me all the time, I don't know. I, I think I'd feel a little bit strange. Not sure how I would feel. I mean, to me, it, it, 
it kind of brings up feeling of like cruise ship where you've got kind of closed in, you know, state rooms and, you know, stuff like that. I always think of airlines as being, you know, pretty open and you can see a long ways and, you know, it's almost more like a theater experience. <laughs> Lots of people, you know, sitting in the same place. So yeah, definitely would have a, a different, a different feel for sure. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd want to be in a tiny little box regardless of how luxurious it, it was, but uh, Lufthansa is also developing something. Um, they're uh, they're calling this the Allegris First Class High Wall Super Suites, and Lufthansa is working with a couple of firms: uh, Collins Aerospace does the seats, and also a design house, Priestman Good, on these super suites. But so far, Lufthansa hasn't said how they're going to deal with this cabin view requirement. Um, so we'll we'll see. I don't know if there's something creative they can do other than a a video a camera in the suite or I don't know some other kind of. What else could you do? I mean, you could have some transparent walls or something like that, or I, I don't know. Um, so they're working it's, on that. It's very creepy. It is. I, it. There's a theme that what what's old is new again. I mean. Enclosed suites were on a lot of original airliners, like the Hindenburg. Mm. Um, they all had basically full suites, you know, and because they were all based on uh, Pullman coaches, you know, that translated into aircraft. But I guess my question is, is this really, really necessary yeah, do you want to spend ten thousand dollars on a on one of these little suites, or, or you just go out and charter your own jet? Well, but that's what I'm saying. Is the, I guess is the question is who's the mark? Who's the market that's paying for these suites? Like you just said, Max. And if you can afford these suites, why aren't you you going on a private jet? Then nobody's gonna worry about you being videotaped or whatever. I mean, the moment somebody gets videotaped in their suite and it gets released to the internet, that will be the end of these. Because I know they're saying they're not being recorded, but yeah, I mean, all you have to do is hold a cell phone up to the video screen and you can record it, you know? And it won't have to be a great video to be released to the internet to cause a scandal. So it's like, I, and for safety reasons, it's like there, there's a reason why these aberrants have to be viewed by crew. Sure. I understand Emirates and I understand Lufthansa, but it's like, okay, who is, who's the market? I, I, I need somebody to explain that to me. I've got a solution for you guys. You're worried about the uh, the camera. I think instead they should just uh, assign a crew member to stand there and you know watch, <laughs> yeah. you know, arms arms <laughs> folded, just kind of watching the whole time. So that way you're not being recorded. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, speaking of recording videos or photographs or or whatever on the plane, uh, we have an item from paddleyourowncanoe.com that uh, kind of relates to this. Yeah, this is a really interesting story, and it actually relates to an experience that I had 
on an airline at one time, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But essentially what happened was a professional photographer was physically detained by a pilot and a flight attendant who were working on behalf of American Airlines. And he was forced to hand over his phone so that they could scour his photo item to make sure that, oh my gosh, he had not taken a picture with a flight attendant in the shot. Golly, Ned, that would be criminal, would it? Actually, not. Anyway, Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren from Seattle was a freelance photographer, and he tweeted, he said, Honest question, can a crew member physically prevent me from getting off of the airplane until I show them the contents of my phone they wanted to see the last photos to verify that I did not take a photo that contained them in it? And so this is kind of interesting. I, I had an encounter mm, three or four years ago in which I was sitting in one of the first few rows of uh, an aircraft. I was probably, you know, row two or three and we were at a gate and I, I want to say it was at O'Hare. I could, I could be wrong, but I could see as we were sitting at the gate, waiting to depart through the windshield up to a sign that was hanging outside uh, on the wall. And the sign said something like Iceman frequency, you know, 125.3. And I just thought, Iceman, that's pretty funny. That's the guy from the Tom Cruise movie. So I, I, I took my phone and I'm taking a picture of this as at the moment I take it, a flight attendant suddenly emerges from the galley, at which point she said, did you just take my picture? And I said, no, you stepped into the picture I was just taking. And she was a little confused. I said, look, you can see the word Iceman up there. See, that's, that's from a movie. I was taking a picture of that. And things turned around really quickly. And she said, oh, okay, well, here, I can get even closer and I can take the picture for you, which was kind of a nice way to turn it around. But I was really kind of taken aback that she was concerned that I had, had taken her picture. And it, the photographer said that he somehow you know was led to believe that he had fallen afoul of you know airline rules and the people who uh, you know physically blocked him from getting off the aircraft were citing obscure airline policies that allegedly prevent passengers from taking photos of staff without their consent and they made it clear that they wouldn't let him off until he proved that he you know, hadn't done that well it's really interesting american airlines reached out and basically you know apologized and said nope turns out there is no such policy preventing people from taking photos of flight attendants and other staff. Uh, my understanding is that it's perfectly legal in the U.S. Uh, to do that. Uh, but what's interesting is this you know, rumor or this belief that that policy exists has been circulating for many years. And recently as uh, 2018, the, Amer the Association of uh, Flight Attendants were quoted as saying photography was forbidden for the safety of passengers and crew as well as security of the cabin. A communications manager at American Airlines said, you know, we have communicated this many, many times and even printed it in the magazine that there is no such policy. And yet somehow the rumor continues that uh, passengers can't take pictures of the staff on board. So it's, I thought that was really kind of a fascinating, you know, little, uh, you know, thing that continues to, to, to lurk through the years in aviation lore, which is apparently not true. Yeah. Sometimes these kind of things don't die off and just seem to persist for some reason. Uh, you know, another uh, thing that occurs to me is it almost feels like there must be a little bit more to this story. I mean, was there something else that happened that caused the, you know, the flight attendant to, to become agitated 
um, with this, or was it just a belief that you know that they didn't want their photograph taken? I, it just sort of feels like maybe there was something else going on that that caused it to sort of elevate to this to this level of actually detaining a passenger because that's I mean that's pretty serious. Just to be clear, it was actually a regional flight operated by. PSA, uh, PSA Airlines under the American Eagle brand. So that was the link to uh, to American Airlines. But it's just interesting how, you know, confusing these uh, alleged policies can can be. Hmm. All right. Um, moving on. Uh, yeah. Passengers. Oh, boy. You know, those pesky passengers. Uh, I understand why some, uh, some pilots prefer to fly cargo instead of uh, mammals that breathe and make unreasonable demands and carry cameras with them and take their photos. Uh, but this is about the uh, the weight of passengers. And of course, weight of passengers, as well as weight of the cargo and everything else, is important because of weight and balance considerations. Um, but uh, United Airlines is taking a look at some of the challenges there in, in, in I, I think, a unique way. Yeah, so anyone who is a pilot, I know we have a lot of pilots who are listening right now, uh, know that weight and balance is an important consideration. If you're flying a little Cessna with four seats, that doesn't mean you can put four people of any size into those four seats because there are uh, weight limitations. The FAA has for years had kind of the standard average passenger weight, which was uh, 180 pounds. Though for the airlines, there were uh, even you know more nuanced uh, shades to that. Uh, there were separate average weights to be used for females versus males, and also different weights to be used for summer weight versus winter weight when presumably people had a lot more clothing to stay warm. I'll pick just one example. The average winter weight for males has been increased by the FAA from 190 pounds to 205 pounds. And that is what? That's five pounds more than the average summer weight. Well, we all know that certainly over the last 30, 40 years, Americans in particular have become, <clears throat> what do we say, chunkier? <laughs> <laughs> and so this has become uh, More well-rounded. Oh, I like that. Thank you, David. <laughs> That's perfect. We are more well-rounded for whatever reasons. Uh, anyway, uh, United Airlines has found that uh, with their 757s that these new numbers don't work. Uh, so especially in the wintertime, they're now going to have to block six seats for each flight on any flight that's a 757 to account for these newer, higher weights from the FAA. Hello, Boeing. See, this is why we need a new mom. <laughs> they're using... <laughs> We need it. We need a new aircraft because people are getting too fat for the current one. <laughs> yeah. So that's rather drastic. I mean, uh, especially these days with the load factors that you know that we see. I mean, the airlines are stuffed with people. I, there have been other periods of time where uh, keeping six seats empty, but you wouldn't have to do anything special. Uh, but uh, it, this is an expensive way to kind of address the issue, but. I guess I don't know any other way to to do it. Well, actually, Ryanair has has a solution that's that they're just about to roll out, and instead of charging by the passenger, they're going to charge by the pound. So if you're a lightweight passenger, you only pay you know half as much as a big, heavy, chunky passenger. Yeah. Oh my. <laughs> but and I'm and I'm joking. I've just made that up for anybody who thought. Well, I'm actually, you're, you're, Max, you're not joking because there was a I, I would say five or six years ago. 
somebody was I remember that story. I just don't remember what the airline was that they were actually contemplating you stepping on a scale and wait. Oh, and it was for Tongans. It was for one of the Pacific nations. Oh, right, right. uh, And forgive me, folks, for not remembering, but you know it. It was several hundred episodes ago. Um, But yeah, it was. It was definitely a step on the scale, go aboard the airplane um, issue. So it's, but I'm wondering, I'm wondering if also people are getting heavier, but also airlines are carrying a lot more cargo underneath. So I'm wondering if the six seats they're losing for passengers, they're making up with additional weight underneath the cabin. So it was Samoa Airlines. And uh, there's an article here I just found from 2013. So, uh, so I'm not bad. That that's pretty I, good. I, I, I gotta admit that's pretty good. Yeah, yep. That one was very memorable. We'll have to find out if there's still, if this actually happened, and if it continues. I don't know. So the original idea when uh, Google was formed was that the search engine was going to be called David. And I thought, no, nah, that let's use a different name. <laughs> so, so, so they gave it the name Google instead. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, but sometimes I wonder why I remember things like that. Yeah, yeah. Colossal so, amounts of useless knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, military story uh, to uh, kind of wrap up. The news, uh, David, uh, from airandspaceforces.com. We had a uh, a KC-46 episode. Yeah, this isn't a good... I mean, the KC-46 is... I mean, this is definitely the Boeing's Got Problems episode. Um, But in this case, we had a Class A mishap. And Max, Mr. Trescott looked that up in that... Class A is two point five million dollars worth of damage. Max, was that what yeah. you said earlier? And or death. And what happened was a um, McGuire Air Force Base um, KC forty six, and they just recently qu- acquired the Pegasus um, at the at the base. Was refueling an F fifteen, um, and due to um, improper speeds. The uh, tail boom, um, the refueling boom, snapped up and damaged the tail boom and the tail cone of the um, airframe, causing a Class A mishap. Evidently, the tail boom, the refueling boom is completely toast. It had cracks all the way through it, and the tail cone is going to be need to be replaced. There was no loss of life. Um, I don't think there was any damage to the F-15. The article doesn't say. Um, But clearly, um, one of the issues with the KC-46, besides the video refueling system, is um, the Air Force has said there hasn't been enough elasticity in the flying boom. There's a lot of movement for a boom to go into an aircraft. But besides flying it, there has to be there's a lot of impact and there has to be a lot of structural resistance uh resilience excuse me resilience and it looks like the current boom is a little too rigid and because the because of this problem um it's literally snapped back up into the fuselage and took out the tail cone, tail cone which is 
not really what you want for a air-to-air refueling. And luckily, it did not affect, or at least it's not reported, affect the F-15 because that would have been even more serious of an issue if it took out two aircraft. So I assume that when there's a a failure of the boom like that, uh, there must be systems that automatically shut off the fuel immediately, right? That's not going to... Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's there's an emergency cutoff in the console at all times, you know. Um, now, air-to-air refueling, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, okay? And we've talked about this before, that the probe and drogue method is far less sophisticated than the boom method that um, the, but the boom method pumps out much more fuel much quicker. Um, it is a fairly common mishap that a aircraft comes home with a drogue attached to its uh, refueling probe um, for various reasons in the Navy and the Marine Corps and around. But there's a lot of heft to a boom, and having an aircraft either snap it off or in this case, having it snap back into the fuselage is a major issue. And it, it there really right now isn't any, I mean, it's just under investigations. This occurred only two weeks ago as we're recording this. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the findings were, that what the reason was. Was it the buffeting? Was it the, um, there is an emergency retract for, I, I know, on a KC-35 and KC-135, uh, a KC-10, that should there be a problem, um, you can immediately retract the boom rapidly if there's a problem. Um, and maybe that's what the case was on the 46. But if that's the case, then that's going to be an issue because it retracted so quickly that it did damage, you know, and, and, total the boom the the aircraft is going to either have to be um rebuilt from the back behind and and i'm sure they're going to find structural cracks also in the lower fuselage where the boom retracted flush to the fuselage so yeah retracting means these don't telescope right the booms don't well yeah they do both okay the um if you've ever watched the boom itself the majority of it retract is is pivoted from the fuselage down right and it does have the ability to move slightly um left or right then at the end of the boom there is a the the refueling probe um actually extends or reduces so you drop the boom down over the aircraft and then you extend the probe into the refueling receptacle um, so the, both mechanisms are involved. And again, you are flying the boom. Um, you are, the boom doesn't just come straight down and the aircraft underneath flies into it. Um, in the case of a KC-46 or a 135 or a 10, the, the boom operator is the one directing the refueling probe into the aircraft that's going to be refueled. Yeah, I think we talked last summer about a proposal to uh, allow the KC-46 to be flown with just a single pilot and a boom operator. And I just looked it up, and they actually did that. So last month in October, they had the first two flights where they kind of demonstrated that, yeah, two people can operate this massive airplane. 
And I guess the belief is that, uh, you know, if they're in high risk areas that, you know, they're risking fewer crew members if there's only one pilot on board. I got to tell you, I was flying with someone today who said, yeah, I really like flying with a second pilot. And I said, yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's just, I have always found that uh, it's less stressful when there's a second pilot, uh, you know, in the airplane. If there's just one pilot, man, you're just constantly checking and rechecking to make sure that you've done everything correctly. Uh, because when you've got two pilots, high probability second pilot's going to catch any error uh, pretty quickly. So anyway, I it's interesting that they've, they've moved in that direction. And boy, as a pilot, I don't think that would be much fun. All right. What's up with the geeks? Oh, an item came up uh, that I noticed. Uh, Albuquerque International Balloon Fiesta releases 2022 attendance totals. We've been wondering uh, what the uh, attendance was like at this year's event. And, and I think as somebody said an episode or two ago that uh, the Balloon Fiesta has actually a larger attendance throughout the event than, than Oshkosh does. And the numbers are out, and the uh, Balloon Fiesta says that they estimate a total of 828,800 people attended the event, the nine-day event in this year, 2022. Um, it wasn't a record, but it was pretty close. The, the last Balloon Fiesta before the pandemic, that would be in 2019, had 866,000 guests. This was 829,000 rounded up. But so I thought that was an interesting statistic. They also noted that uh, around 648 balloons were invited. Uh, more than 120 of those were the special shapes balloons. And uh, uh, 20 different countries were represented. And so we'll have a link in the show notes to the article. This is from krqe.com. It's got some more information and statistics about the event. Um, so you can... Uh, Find that in the show notes if you're interested in seeing more. And uh, David, how about you? What's what's new with you? I might be on TV, maybe. Yeah. Um, if I did my job properly, the answer is I won't be. <laughs> <laughs> um, if everyone remembers, in the summer, um, I spent a week at the museum with the museum closed because we were filming Pawn Stars Do America. Um, and the 17th of November, uh, or the 16th of November, the show comes out on History Channel, our episode. Um, we will be having a special event on the 17th. Um, I believe it runs at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, but check your local listings. But you definitely will see the museum after I, I have yet to see it. After I see it, I'll tell you how much of the museum actually um, was actually shown in the um, thing. But between you and me, I'm pretty sure that what I'm going to watch on television, I'm not going to recognize as my workplace. Let's start off with they keep saying that we're in Valley Forge for anybody who knows that we're in Westchester. So it'll be interesting. And so definitely... Um, I worked very hard to stay out of the way of the cameras, but um, you you can maybe I wandered in occasionally in the filming, but we'll see. So that is, again, that shows up. Um, it's Wednesday the sixteenth. 
on the History Channel. So check your local listings, as they say. As they say. All right. And and I'm dying to know, David. What, can you give us any spoilers? I mean, does somebody kind of walk in and go, hey, how much will you give me for this helicopter? <laughs> Reality TV is not very real. I'm going to leave it at that. Here we go. Um, the answer was the items were pre-screened. What you don't see is the fact that they have probably 30 research assistants that come in. They bring a whole bunch of people in, at least for our event, and they pre-screened various items. And so that when the deal occurs, they already know what's going to be offered, how much it's going to be agreed for, etc., it was very, very um, methodical and um, scripted. Script. Thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. It's right. scripted. Yeah. We know that's what yeah, reality shows are like. I mean, it, it was to the point where it was, um, you will see the he- Rick, the senior member of the show, arrive by helicopter. The helicopter took off from one side, the other side of the airfield, flew over, landed at our place. He got out of the helicopter, but they didn't get enough takes. So later on, they rev- spooled up the helicopter on the helipad, and he got out three more times, filming it each time. So that should tell you what you should think of as far as it being an unscripted reality television show. Yeah, yeah. I can't wait to see it. Sounds like fun. I'm I'm glad we know the the date now because uh, I can specifically look for it. You can, you can set your set your DVRs to yeah. History Channel on the 16th. Uh, check your local listings. All right, cool. Be there, Aloha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Max Trescott, what's going on with you? Oh, back on the road again. I'm headed out later this week for. Uh, the number one destination on my uh, travel list, which is Knoxville, Tennessee. I seem to get out there, oh boy, I don't know, five plus times a, a year. And a gentleman has uh, purchased a Vision Jet. We'll be bringing it back to California toward the end of this week. Always fun to, to get out there. Uh, now, I'm using a different strategy this time. <laughs> when I went out in October, I was doing my annual recurrent training. And I, uh, there are no direct flights to uh, to Knoxville, so I took a connection through uh, Dallas Fort Worth. I um, missed my connection literally by one minute. The uh, they had closed the door. It was still nine minutes before the airplane departed, but there was nobody there at the gate. They were closed the door. They were all down there, and of course, uh, yeah, the inbound flight was forty five minutes late. I ran, uh, and you know, still missed it. And, of course, uh, they said it was all natural causes, so they weren't going to pay for my hotel. So I uh, had a flight out early the next morning, which meant that I was in the bed about six hours and slept about four. And when I arrived within an hour of stepping off the jet, I was in the simulator. And I can assure you my performance on four hours of sleep was not (laughs) nearly as good as it was two days later. So this time I'm going out a day early. I just figured – you know, if any goes, anything goes wrong, there's lots of time to rest, kick back, recover. People have suggestions on what to do while I'm uh, you know, in Tennessee for an extra day. Uh, let me know. Um, and I also want to mention that last week on Aviation News Talk, episode 252, I interviewed a uh, SF-50 Vision Jet pilot who works for 
Cirrus, and we talked about engine-out situations and energy management. It's Jeff Galloway. He's a former uh, Air Force uh, lieutenant colonel who flew F-15s and uh, was also an instructor pilot. And uh, we basically just talked in general about, hey, what do you do when the engine quits and how do you manage your energy uh, to get to the airport and then you know get from above the airport you know, down to the runway. So encourage people to check that out at aviationnewstalk.com. Ah, for sure. Am I the only person who hears the word energy management and the only thing that comes to my mind is Bob Hoover? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's really interesting because classically, you know, energy management in an F-15 is totally different than, you know, what we were talking about, which is, you know, how do you take what what energy you have left when the engine quits and use it to your best advantage? Yeah. All right. I'm going to watch that. I am so far behind in my uh, podcast listening, as you might think, having been gone for so long. But um, yeah, maybe maybe I'll, instead of trying to start at the end and catching up, maybe I'm going to start with that one. Start with what's fresh. All right. We received a, an email from uh, Beverly. This is Eastern Airlines Flight 401 50th Anniversary Memorial Monument, and it's an update. And you you may uh, you may recall that this Eastern Airlines flight 401 this was a flight from JFK to Miami in 1972 so 50 years ago December 29th it was a Lockheed uh, L1011 and it crashed in the Everglades in Florida four crew members four cockpit crew members three of whom died two of the 10 flight attendants perished, and 96 of the 163 passengers were killed. There were just 75 survivors. And this is one of those kind of classic uh, accidents that causes some, you know, changes to be made. But uh, apparently the uh, the plane crashed while the uh, flight crew, all of them, were preoccupied with a landing gear indicator light was reporting it was it was burned out and they didn't notice that the autopilot had been disconnected inadvertently and the uh, you know, the airplane had lost altitude and crashed other historical aspects this was the first fatal crash of a wide body aircraft it was also the first hull loss and fatal crash of the L1011 TriStar so a group of, uh, of folks have been working for quite a while to uh, develop, to get a memorial monument uh, for this. And they are uh, planning to dedicate this on December 29th at, uh, at 1 p.m. So if uh, you want to learn more about that or, or were impacted by the crash one way or another, you can learn more at this email address. It's FLT for flight, FLT401memorial at gmail.com. If you're planning to attend, you can learn more there. They're also accepting donations or continuing to accept donations for this. And you can either contact the National Air Disaster Foundation uh, send them a check, or you can go to the plainsafe.org website, click on donation, and there is uh, a, a way to contribute to this if you'd uh, if you'd like to. It's a it would be a tax deductible donation. 
if you want more information about that, let us know. Write to us, and we'll pass along some additional information. Yeah, that's really an accident that has been much discussed in aviation circles, and hopefully we all learned something from it. Very tragic in that it was certainly very preventable, but it definitely, I think, uh, inspired a lot of the kind of development work on crew resource management and yeah, how to get people to work together and not get focused in on just one single thing. I, my recollection is that they flew a missed approach after seeing the uh, the faulty gear light, and they were told to climb, I think, to 3,000. It might have been 2,000, but I think it was 3,000. They were essentially just circling over the, uh, the Everglades. And my recollection is that uh, there was something set up that was different on the two uh, – two yokes and uh, pressure on one of them caused the autopilot to disconnect. Whereas if the, the pressure had been set the same, it wouldn't have happened. There, there was, you know, some little thing that was kind of non-standard on this aircraft that allowed that to, uh, to happen. But then it just slowly descended down into the, uh, to the Everglades. So very, very tragic. Yes. Oftentimes, most of the time, almost always, uh, there are lessons to be learned from, from these fatal accidents, things that, change aviation and make it more safe. I don't know if that provides any solace to the families of the victims or not. I, I imagine if if nothing positive comes out of a, a crash like this, it would I mean, it's just sort of double tragedy. But if if at least there is something that would likely save lives in the future that comes comes out of it, I mean that's I, I don't want to say it's better, but it's you know, at least there's something positive which it would help me if I was ever in a situation of being the family of a of a victim of, of that kind of a thing. I don't know. It's tough. I, I know not all countries enjoy kind of the same viewpoint of uh, investigating accidents, fatal accidents, and then taking uh, positive safety action as a result. Some of them, uh, you know, there's, there's uh, criminal charges and things like that. So I think we're fortunate in that, uh, by and large, uh, I guess, barring gross negligence, we don't see that in, in this country and many others. But it's not that way everywhere, I know. Yeah, I think this particular accident is one that virtually every airline pilot is probably familiar with. So, yeah, I, I think it did make a difference and it did change the way people uh, you know, actually do their flying and think about it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was a positive outcome from this. Right. And again, if you'd like to make a donation to help with this memorial, um, I'm, I'm sure the families, the relatives, the friends of the victims would be extremely appreciative. So consider that if, you, if you're able to. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Airplane Geeks podcast. As always, you can find us at airplanegeeks.com. And you can go directly to the show notes. We have a shortcut link. It's a permanent shortcut link that redirects right to the show notes, uh, which is airplanegeeks.com slash in the episode number. So that's airplanegeeks.com slash 723. Our email address is thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. You have quite a backlog there, which we'll uh, try to get to as quickly as, as possible. We got we to gotta knock down that that backlog, but we appreciate it. I know a lot of people have sent in um, articles and topics for us to talk about. So we'll try to get to more of those going forward, uh, as well as getting back to scheduling some guests 
uh, which is probably my fi- well one of my favorite parts of the uh, of the show is conversations with the guests. So, Max Trescott, anything closing that you'd like to say? Well, gentlemen, it is very nice to be back with all of you together here uh, talking. It's been a long hiatus here of eight weeks and also to be able to communicate with our friends around the world. So it's nice to to be back in the saddle, as it were. And as usual, I tell folks just to head out if they want to find more about what I'm doing to aviationnewstalk.com. If you want to send me an email, just click on contact at the top of the page. Great. And David Vanderhoof, how about you? Um, of course, you can find me lurking on our Slack listener team, and you can join that conversation by sending us an email to the geeks at airplanegeeks.com. And of course, you can check us all out on all of the various social media platforms if you know how to spell airplane geeks. Um, and of course, you can find me at the American Helicopter Museum. Uh, we just had haunted helicopters, so we're getting ready now. We've we've put we've put the ghosts away, and out come the, come the holiday ornaments and stuff, and and the train sets, etc. So, um, looking forward to the holidays, and um, of course, you can see the museum or what little of it we'll see on Pawn Stars uh, next week. All right. And I'm Max Flight. You can uh, find me at 30,000feet.com. It's a little simple page and it tells the, the story, my, my story and where you can find me online. So please join us next time as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Keep the blue side up. Bye, everybody. And thanks for listening. <laughs>